Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. The content of CME to go podcasts do not relate to any product of a commercial interest. Therefore, there are no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit textmed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Hi, I'm Heather Betridge, Associate Vice President of Practice Management Services at the Texas Medical Association. And today, my guest speakers are Jennifer Rios, TMA's Director of Digital Communication, and Reed Whitliff, partner at Whitliff & Cutter, who specialize in technology. In this Ask the Expert episode, we are answering the most frequently asked questions about protecting your online reputation and the do's and don'ts of social media. Jennifer, let's start with you. What would you say is the most commonly asked question by physicians? I'm going to start with what so- what can social media do uh, for your practice? So why use it? People ask me that all the time. Like, what's the point? Why should I even be using social media? I have a website. I have, it's doing just fine for me. So why do I need to introduce this, this other mode of communication? And these are really the top things I always tell people is just, you know, it's best to use social because you it really does keep you top of mind with your patients. You know, when we're all personally scrolling through our feeds and when something pops up, it really just keeps you top of mind and it keeps you right there. Like, oh, hey, there's Dr. So-and-so. They know. They can tell me what's going on. And then when they also have a health or medical concern right away that you're kind of in the back of their mind already because they're used to seeing you pop up here and there. Social also really positions you as an expert and as a leader. You can definitely uh, utilize social to kind of share some thoughts, share some education, sort of get your patients educated on, uh, you know, recent topics or trending things that are have to do with your particular um, specialty or area of expertise. It's a really awesome platform to let your patients know of any kind of updates and changes to your practice, whether that's changes in hours or policies. You can kind of just pop it on there. Sometimes people only go to your website if they're looking for, you know, to make an appointment or even just maybe learn a little bit more about you. But this is a way to talk to your already established 
patient base? Because if they're talking to you on social, more than likely they've already engaged with you and you're probably already their physician. It's also an awesome way to just educate your patients in the community. You can share news um, on topics that you think would be relevant to your patients. You can share updates on different health items. And it's really just a place to kind of shine and like share your knowledge. It's also a place to make you accessible and approachable. A lot of times we hear, oh, I just can't get a hold of my doctor or, you know, my doctor, it doesn't have time to talk to me. Well, social is a really easy way for you to sort of be there for them on that level and answer comments or questions right there on the page. It's also just a good way to drive new patient engagement because when your patients are liking and sharing the things that you post, it's not only them liking and sharing these things, they're actually, once they hit that like button and that share button, that's going into their feeds and it's showing up on their friends' pages as well. It's almost like sort of like a recommendation in some ways. So that's the one main basics I always tell people about why to use social. I like the point you made that as physician leaders who want to educate their patients on current topics and and health-related issues, they can take advantage of social media to pop up in the feeds of their patients. What are some best practices for using social media and some of the big don'ts? Some of the best practices is just define your goals. You know, think about what you want to do and who you want to reach on social. If you really only have time for one channel, I would suggest starting with Facebook just because there's a lot of different features in Facebook that can help you add in your hours and different plugins and stuff like that. Be active and choose the right channels. Like I said, only one, you only have time for one, start with Facebook and kind of build from there. Um, I would say another suggestion for doing is posting often. You want to at least post once a week to kind of keep the page active. If you're not being active on social, your page just kind of stagnates and sits there and it really isn't doing you any services. And a lot of times people ask what you should be posting, photos from events, relevant news, videos, health update. And like I said earlier, practice information and updates are great. Staff photos and profiles, let people know who your staff are. They feel like a little more connected to you when they see these folks on social. You're going to want to set boundaries too. Don't accept friend requests from your patients. You're going to want to keep it very professional on this page. And then follow policies. Either if your practice has a policy in place, you're going to want to be following that. If you don't, you're going to want to work on developing one. So there's rules and parameters in place with this social media. This is a big one I really like to drive home, and that's just limiting access. You know, you don't want to give everyone in your practice access to these pages. I always tell people, define a social media champion in your practice. Someone who is good at it, good at communicating with folks, is knowledgeable about all of the policies that you have in place, and that person can be your primary poster. The other thing that that is good about that is that it keeps a consistent voice on your page, which is really good. And then just be personable yet professional. This is a place for you to kind of show your human side and engage with your patients outside of the exam room. The big don'ts here, though, is just don't offer any kind of medical advice over social media. People will try to ask and you're not going to want to do that. You're also not going to want to share any kind of patient information or PHI or photos. You never want to be too salesy. You know, you don't want to try to sell, come on, come see me, be my patient. You want to just be more human and, and friendly. And a big one is just not engaging with people who want to come to your page and troll your page or leave negative comments. You know, there's productive ways to do that. 
You also just don't want to get too personal. This is your business page. This is not the place to post your family vacation pics or what you had for lunch today or anything like that. Try to keep it as uh, professional as possible. Thank you, Jennifer. Now, Reed, let's dive into some of the legal aspects of social media. Tell us a little about your experience with social media and physicians. Okay, so uh, my name is Reed Whitliff. I'm an attorney here in Austin. Uh, I tell people that I am an unusual attorney because I kind of have an unusual practice area. My background is that I was a federal prosecutor that specialized in computer crime. And one time I ran the state's cybercrime division when I created it. And then um, for about the past 20 years, not quite, close to 20 years, I've been in uh, mostly doing civil aspects of things that relate to kind of cybercrime. And that could be anything from intellectual property theft to online, various forms of online malevolent conduct to uh, I do a fair amount uh, working with folks that are dealing with online defamation. And unfortunately, the concept that somebody can launch a campaign to hurt your business by attacking you online uh, and attacking your reputation online is, is a growing problem and a difficult problem from a legal perspective to be able to untangle. And I will tell you probably the most relevant matter that I've worked on in the medical field involved a practice here in Austin that was really viciously attacked by a patient who launched a campaign to try to discredit the doctors and the practice. And that particular campaign involved creating literally hundreds of different identities and then posting online reviews of the business as if multiple people were negatively reviewing the business again and again and again and again, so that anybody that was Googling or searching for a particular type of medical care would find this business and see the reviews. And all the reviews were, this business is fraudulent. They cheated me. They engaged in fraudulent billing practices. And it was just really, it was really a difficult problem to deal with. And so, you know, in terms of things to think about, if you are in that situation where you're dealing with not just a single negative post, but a, a concerted effort to defame or discredit your business, some things to think about. Number one, and I think this is just absolutely critical, is to keep HIPAA in mind that, you know, HIPAA, and I've dealt with some of the attorney, the government attorneys doing HIPAA investigations, they take the position that if you acknowledge a patient's online post in any way, even if somebody posts something favorable about your practice or you as a doctor or a healthcare provider, and you simply say, thank you, that's a violation of HIPAA. And so it is really, really important that you think long and hard before you respond to any kind of online post that might have been posted by somebody that's covered by HIPAA. And the second thing I would say is 
before you engage in the legal process in one of these situations, try everything else first. Because the legal process is really expensive, it's really time consuming, and it's it can be painful. And I'm a lawyer telling you guys that, but really try to evaluate is, is whatever the conduct is or the posts are, is that really hurting me? Is it better to just let it go? And hopefully the person will, will be bored or move on to something else. You can hire reputation management firms that will help if it's only a couple of posts, not recurring over, you know, day after day after day, they can help those posts show up further down on back pages of Google searches and things like that. So all those, I would explore all those things first before engaging a lawyer and, and following the legal process. And one of the reasons that that is the case is that the, that in order to bring a civil action for defamation in Texas, there are a couple of hurdles that the legislature has put up that make it extremely difficult and time consuming to do so. And the most significant of those is a thing called the TCPA or the Texas uh, Citizens Participation Act. And this particular law says that if you sue somebody for defamation, the defendant, and first of all, even before you sue somebody, you got to get the person identified. And so it, typically these posts are being put online by people that are using fake names and, and not revealing their true identity. You may have a good idea who they are, but you still need to prove it. And that can be a laborious task in and of itself. But assuming you get the person identified and you bring a suit against them for defamation, they have available to them uh, under this TCPA law, an early motion to dismiss that basically says, okay, practice or doctor or healthcare provider, you need to come in right now and you need to pr provide clear and specific evidence that establishes your claim. And if you fail to do that, uh, then you've got to pay all my attorney's fees and the case will automatically be dismissed. And so it's, it's not a trivial thing and it adds to the cost of litigation uh, and, it, and it puts uh, the possibility that if you lose that motion, you're going to have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. So um, it's, a, it's a significant hindrance in dealing with these sort of online defamation campaigns. Um, However, there are some th tools that you have and you can do some creative things uh, in these situations. One thing you can do, there's a relatively recent law that's called the online impersonation law. It's actually a criminal statute. And if somebody uses uh, a, an actual third party's name without their permission, it's actually not just name, it's name or persona. So if somebody doesn't just make up a name, but uses somebody else's name and then goes online and uses that name or persona uh, with the intent to harm somebody, that's actually a crime. And there's a separate civil claim in, in the Texas Civil Practices and Remedies Code where you can sue somebody for damages for that. And we actually, in the case in Austin, I was talking about the particular, and it was a former patient whose complaint was that he went in to get an eye exam. 
they had a policy that said, we're going to do a refraction test that's typically not covered by insurance. You're going to have to pay out of pocket today if you, you know, and then if it's covered, we'll send, we'll reimburse you. It was, a, I think, a $45 test. He signed that form, paid the money, and then got his exam. And then apparently not the typical thing, but in this particular circumstance, the insurance company reimbursed the funds and the practice sent the patient the reimbursement. And apparently it had been ripped in the mail. And that's what triggered this guy to go on this absolutely years long campaign to discredit this practice. But in that particular campaign, the patient began using real people's names to make these defamatory posts. And we were able to get enough evidence to show that he had done that. And we actually went to the DA's office here in Travis County and he got indicted for that, uh, which is pretty unusual. So uh, big picture, I think, is if you are dealing with some sort of negative campaign, online campaign against your practice, be really careful and thoughtful before you respond to it online. You might want to engage directly with the party offline, but be really thoughtful and careful before you do it online, because that can get you in a lot of trouble. And it's really hard to hold yourself back because it just, these people will post things that are not true, that really anger you and you, and it's super easy to just fire off a response. And you want to think carefully about that. If you have to go down the path of engaging with them in the legal process, you got to think about it on the front end. There's not a, there's not a silver bullet on these deals. You got to think about it on the front end, be prepared for kind of an expensive long battle and find a lawyer that has done this kind of thing before, because it, it is kind of novel. And a lot of lawyers have not had to deal with these types of issues before. Some of the statutes are new and things like that. That is just incredible. The the links that that person went into in a smear campaign. You know, a, a question we receive frequently in, in TMA practice consulting is, is there a way to remove comments on sites like Yelp or any of the other review sites that are just negative or flat untrue? Or is it once it's out there, it it's there to stay? Uh, it it depends. Um, so there's you know a wide variety of places where people can post information about your practice or your business, and it could be Yelp, it could be Google Business Reviews, it could be you know Facebook, it could be there's just a whole bunch of different uh, internet service providers that. Um, uh, you know, could have reviews or comments about your business or practice. Each of those providers will have their own terms of use and each of them will, you know, it, it's their platform. They will make their decision about whether or not to take something down. Some of those platforms like Facebook, for example, has a very elaborate process you know, where actually they've hired outside experts to serve as almost a court to review some of those things. Um, other providers don't have nearly as sophisticated a system. So the answer to your question is, 
Uh, it depends. You're, you know, sometimes you can get them to take those things down and sometimes you can't. What I would tell you is um, if, if you do one thing that's important, anytime somebody starts to post things that you think are inappropriate or not true, document it, make sure you document it and keep a file, you know, of, of each of those things. The second thing I would say is, is whatever platform the post is on, go and pull their terms of use and try to identify a provision that's, that covers the particular post that you want taken down. So if it's a racial post or it's a, it has a sexual comment, a lot of times those things are covered in the terms of use. It's a little bit trickier when you get to the, well, that's not true statement because a lot of the platforms will say, well, it kind of depends on the post itself. Is this really a statement of fact or is it an opinion? So if somebody says, I think ABC practice group has terrible customer service, that's an opinion. That's going to be hard to get taken down versus somebody says, I went to ABC practice group and they defrauded me because they charged me $10,000 for this procedure when it, it really only cost $5,000. And then if you have the records and you prove to the platforms like, no, that's not true. We didn't charge that much. Then you can probably get it taken down. The squeaky wheel gets the grease on these things. So you have to be persistent with the platforms. And frankly, it helps to have a lawyer involved in that. Uh, my experience has been that when a lawyer, you know, like we typically will send letters that document all these things. And we tend to get a little bit better result when it comes from our letterhead than I think when it comes from somebody else's letterhead. So hope that answers the question. One thing I will add just on that question really quick is with Facebook, there is a setting where you can turn off the review functionality for your page. So if you don't want folks to be able to review you on Facebook, you can go into your Facebook settings and click the button that says turn off and the review portion of your page will turn off. So that's, that's also something to think about. What if the physician or practice has already replied to a negative review online, should they remove that post or leave it as it is? I would remove it. Another question we get is about responding to positive reviews. Is this something a non-physician, like a, a manager, can do without risking some sort of violation or should practices even respond at all? Based on my experience dealing with some HIPAA investigations, as crazy as it sounds, and it sounds crazy, I think you can't respond at all. And I think the concept is that regardless of what the patient says, if you respond, you are in fact acknowledging that that person is a patient of your practice and that that reveals PHI. And it's certainly not my policy. I didn't make the rules. I didn't, I, it's not the way I would interpret them. But that's my understanding of the way they've been, at least the last time I dealt with it, they've interpreted them. Now, uh, by all means, seek counsel if, you know, on that from other folks if you want. But um, as crazy as it sounds, I think that's the interpretation that uh, HHS has had. Would it be appropriate or towing a fine line if you were to terminate a patient from the practice for something like uh, saying something false about your practice. 
You know, you mean terminate the relationship and not have them as a patient anymore? Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know, and I don't want to speak to any sort of ethical obligations that practitioners might have. I can't speak to that. Um, but I don't think that in and of itself, so long as it's not done online or in some sort of public fashion, but I, I, so long as there's no ethical barrier or other barrier that would prevent you from terminating the relationship with the patient, I don't think there's any reason why you can't do that. What options do practices have to deal with an upset patient post? For example, let's say a, a parent posted a, a complaint with a picture of her child's statement and information and then tagged the practice. I can, I can speak a little bit to this, not from a legal standpoint, but for just a purely a suggestion. Um, and I think it goes back to what Reed's been saying as well, is just to take that offline and call that patient and have that discussion with them over the phone or in person, invite them to come in and discuss it. Um, the other thing also from just from a Facebook standpoint is there is a functionality on Facebook where you can hide comments and hide posts. It's right next to the comment. There's three little dots. You can see them on the comments. If you click on those three little dots, there's an option to hide. However, it doesn't hide the comment or the post from everyone. Whoever originally posted it can still see it. So can their friends. But when they come to your page, it will not live on your page anymore. No one who visits your page will see it. So that that's a little Facebook trick that I've learned over time. I would honestly, my suggestion would be just to take that conversation offline and engage with them either on the phone or in person and ask them to politely please remove that if they're happy after that conversation. I think that's good advice. And I think that's good customer service and it's smart business. You know, if you have somebody that's got a problem, try to engage with them and see if you can resolve the problem. And, and so I, I think that is good advice. Unfortunately, it's sometimes you just can't. What about positive posts? Is it okay to post patients' Google or Yelp reviews or screenshots on our social media? I'm going to say probably not based on everything Reed has just talked about because I think it's you acknowledging this person as your patient, but I'm going to let Reed confirm what I just said. Yeah, I would be, you know, I would be cautious about that as well. Again, as I understand that the interpretation that the government has taken is that if you do anything that acknowledges that somebody out there is one of your patients, you've revealed you know, PHI, potentially in violation of HIPAA. And so even if they've said, I mean, that's the thing that's crazy about it is yeah. that you know, a patient might say, I love Dr. Jones. He's the, you know, he was, he did such a great job for me. I'd re recommend him to all of my friends because he's so good. So they've already told the world that they're a patient of Dr. Jones, but they still take the position that if you, even to a post like that, respond, thank you for your nice comments, you have violated HIPAA because you have acknowledged that they are in fact a patient of Dr. Jones. And so um, now maybe that'll change at some point, but it, it is unfortunately that that's what the rule is. 
a lot of practices that we go into have gotten into the habit of asking their existing patients to leave a positive review or go online and leave a positive review to tell others that you've had a great experience. Are there any red flags or obstacles in doing that? I don't think so. You know, again, I don't know if there's any ethical implications if a practice group, for example, was to offer a discount or something, a benefit to a patient for a positive review. So I think there there may be some nuances that need to be considered carefully if that's what you're going to do. But I don't think that if the patient voluntarily decides themselves to post something favorable about the practice, you know, if they, if they're leaving your practice after an appointment and they say, man, that was, I really appreciate all you did for me. And the uh, receptionist says, great. It'd be wonderful if you would say something nice about us on Facebook. I can't think of a reason why that's a problem. So long as the, it's the patient themselves that does it. Thank you so much, Jennifer and Reed, for your time today and and for the, the tips and guidance and appropriate interaction when using social media. To our physician listeners, you may claim CME credit for today's episode and other TMA Practice Well podcast episodes. Just go to www.textmed.org forward slash CME to go. Register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Like and follow to receive more help from TMA Pact as well. Until next time, stay well.